Gospel chapter 23. I have a, a, a study tonight. This is a, a Good Friday study. I think that it is Good Friday. I titled it The King on the Cross. And tonight we are gathered together to remember our King Jesus when he was crucified. Now, I said this the last time I, I, I taught on uh, when Jesus was being beaten. That this isn't something that I enjoy in this happy Disneyland sense of like, I'm happy to go over these things today. I, I, I don't have that type of happiness towards remembering what they did to my Jesus, but I do feel called to remember it because Jesus even commands his disciples to have communion and to break bread and remember what he did on the cross for them. And through it, I know that it brings me peace to remember these things, what Jesus did on the cross for us. It brings me joy through the love that God has displayed through the death of his only son on the cross for us, for our sins. So that's what we're doing. We're, we're studying on the king on the cross. You know, if you guys were with us on this past Wednesday and the Sunday before, we saw the events that were leading up to Jesus being crucified. If you were here last Sunday, uh, Mikey Sanchez taught an awesome study on the triumphant Palm Sunday entry. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, which was actually providential because my wife and I got to ride into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and, and kind of experience like going up the hill, like being on the side of the Mount of Olives and just seeing like the, the land, the way people travel up and down these roads. When Jesus was doing that, all these people crying out to him, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And only a week later, they would be shouting out to the same, the same crowd will be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Just a complete change of heart towards Jesus. Then we, we studied on the betrayal of Judas that same, uh, that same week when Judas would betray Jesus. And then this past Wednesday, Ivan Gonzalez, he taught on when Jesus was led by Pontius Pilate, well, first by the Jews and then by Pontius Pilate, and then by King Herod into these different trials. And the injustice that was taking place there, and, and if you were here on Wednesday night, I know you guys were, were blessed to, to hear Ivan teach on that because the way he just expounded on just how illegal this trial was, how wicked the hearts of the people were, the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders who took Jesus, who was an innocent man, and they took him in an illegal trial. They weren't supposed to take a man like that and bring him to trial in the middle of the night. And they put him there in that room and they set up false witnesses against him. And they would say, this man is going against the law of Moses and he wants to tear down the, the temple. And they were bringing up these false accusations about what Jesus was doing. They were saying he's an enemy to Rome. And then they would ask him, straightforward, they would say, well, why don't you answer for yourself? Are you the son of the living God? And he said, I am he. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of God of power. And then they ripped their clothes. They tore their clothes, the, the Pharisees, and they said, blasphemy. And as they were doing that, the reason why they would tear their clothes was it was a sign of mourning. And the reason why it's a sign of mourning is because they're saying, basically, we're mourning your death. You're, you're dead to us. 
at that point. And then they began to put a bag on Jesus and punch him in the face. And when they put that bag on him, you see, he can't see when someone's going to hit him. Now, naturally, when somebody comes to hit you in the face, you will dive. You will, you'll flinch and recline. You'll try to, your body will naturally try to take that blow, which will help some of the force of that hit. But when you have a bag on your head and you can't see where it's coming from, you take the full force of that hit. So Jesus' face would have been bruised and swollen from the beatings that he was taking. They would pluck out his beard and spit in his face there in that trial. And this was all a, a, a premeditated plot. They meditated and devised this plan against Jesus. And then we saw Pilate, as they then took him to Pilate, that Pilate was kind of a coward in what he even saw was taking place. Where, where Pilate, Pontius Pilate, would say, I, I find no fault in this man. And but because of the crowds and the people and his fear of Rome and Caesar, he would say, okay, well, send him to, to Herod. You know, maybe Herod will take care of him. I don't, I, I don't want to have to deal with this. And they would, he would come back. They would send Jesus back to Pilate. And Pilate would say, well, I'll, let, I'll scourge him for you and then I'll release him. I'm supposed to release someone to you on this time of the year. But they would say, no, give us Barabbas. We want Barabbas instead. This guy who was a murderer, a rebel to Rome. And we saw that the crowd, the thir thirst for injustice, they would cry out and say, his blood be upon us and upon our children. The same crowd. And then when you look at, at some of the things that the Jewish people as a nation has suffered since that time, the, the Holocaust, the racism, the hatred towards them. And yet still they're God's chosen people. And then we saw the scourging where Pilate said, okay, we're going to scourge him. They would take this cat of nine tails, this whip. And at the end of that whip, there would be these animal teeth and glass and these rocks that were shaped in such a way that as the punisher would hit his victim, those things would embed into the, the person's flesh and then as they would pull it back out, it would rip off his flesh in chunks. And I, I said, I, I, it does not, I don't like going over this, but I am called to it. I'm called to remember what he did. His body broken for us. So the scourging took place. And then Jesus was led back to Pilate. And Pilate and his cowardice said, all right, we'll crucify him. The Romans will do it. And that's where we, we pick up in our, our study today. So we'll begin with verse 26, and we'll go verse by verse. It says, Now as they laid hold, as they led him away, they lay hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross, that he might bear it after Jesus. So Jesus is now going from the place of the praetorium where he was with Pilate, and they're leading him away to be crucified. And as he is carrying this cross, in other gospels we find out that the cross, it becomes so heavy for Jesus to even physically carry anymore. He's already, the scourging alone would kill people at times. And 
in his physical weakness. He's carrying this burden. He can no longer carry it. So the Romans, they see this man of Cyrene. Now Cyrene, for you guys to know, it's this place that's in the north coast of Africa. Uh, some people think that he may have even been, uh, had black skin. Uh, we're not sure. But it says in that verse that he was traveling through, probably traveling to celebrate the Passover. He was still Jewish. And if you go into Israel today, you'll still see there, there's actually African Jews. They're, they're Jewish, but they're black. And so Simon was traveling through, and it says, if you notice, they laid hold of him. Meaning that Simon didn't go out and volunteer and say, hey, I'll help Jesus carry the cross. No, they grabbed this guy and they said, hey, you need to help this man carry his cross. Now, if it was me or any sane person watching a, a condemned man being paraded through a city, you probably wouldn't want to have anything to do with it in the moment. Imagine you, you see a criminal in our modern day carrying, they were for, forced to carry his case of syringes for lethal injection to the, the lethal injection chair. You probably, if somebody asks you, hey, can you go help him carry that? You're like, no way, right? I, I don't want to even be seen with that guy. And perhaps Simon, when he was forced to do this, was even fearful of the idea of guilt by association at that point. Yet still, they compelled him. He had to obey because it was Roman guards who were telling him to do this. And I recognize, I don't know exactly what Simon was going through, but I know that fear can be crippling in our service. That fear can cause us to be like Peter. When Peter said, Jesus, I'll, I'll, I'll die for you. I'll, these, all these who are following after you, they might abandon you, Lord, but I will never abandon you. And Jesus looked at Peter and said, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. He's like, in his head, he's probably like, no, I'll never do it. And then when Jesus is in the middle of that trial, a little girl comes up to Peter and says, hey, weren't you with, with Jesus? And he's like, no, I don't know the man. Denying his Lord. Why? Fear. Fear hindered him from serving the Lord. And if fear is hindering us from serving the Lord, it's sin. It's sin. In our, sin, by the way, it, sin is missing the mark. That's simply what sin is. That's literally what it means to miss the mark of righteousness, of goodness. And when we allow fear to, to cripple us, we're missing the mark. He denied the Messiah. Where were the disciples, by the way, at this point? How come they're not helping Jesus carry the cross? No, they ran, right? They all fled. Remember in Luke's gospel, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. But they all forsook him. Now, what's interesting too about Simon, this man who was laid hold of and helped Jesus carry the cross, I have a theory that he actually ended up becoming a believer. And the reason why I believe this is because in the book of Acts and also in the book of Romans, it mentions these two men, Alexander and Rufus. And in Mark's gospel, it says that Simon, in the 
gospel account, Simon is the father of Alexander and Rufus. So it is likely that this same Simon was the same dad who was with these guys who are mentioned in the book of Acts, who Paul even writes to in the book of Romans. So he must have been impacted by what he saw, what he did there for Jesus. And he was never the same. That's my theory. In verse 27, it says, And a great multitude of people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. So now I see two groups of people. There's a great multitude, right? Because whenever they would have a Roman crucifixion, they wanted it to be public and humiliating. So there's a crowd of people, multitudes of people. Many of these people were cursing Jesus. But there's also women mentioned here who are mourning and lamenting for Jesus. And I recognize that not all the Jews succumbed to the injustice of the Pharisees. You see, in a world full of, of Christ deniers, in a world full of anti-Christian values, there's haters towards Christianity. There are still people who are God's remnant. And I want to exhort us tonight to proclaim Jesus in our life. To not be ashamed and not to be the ones who are fearful and run away and hide, but to the, be the people who say, look, whatever it costs, I'm going to follow after Jesus, to not deny him. Because when you proclaim Jesus, it will cost you. It's going to cost you family. It's going to cost you friends. It's going to cost you awkward situations where people are like, man, this guy's always talking about some holy roller stuff and Jesus, and he's talking about the Bible all the time. And to me, he's so weird, or they look funny. They talk funny. They're smiling all the time. What's wrong with these people? We're full of the Holy Spirit and they, they don't even realize to them what is light or to them, in reality, what is light to them is weird. And it's the light of Jesus shining through us. In verse 28 it says, But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. Now Jesus here, he's at his most humiliating and painful moment of suffering. And instead of thinking about himself as he's seeing these women mourn, he begins to preach to them. To the very end, Jesus is giving a message to these people in a moment of suffering and he's still concerned for the individuals who he sees in front of him. And he's warning them actually that there's going to come a day when it's going to be better, as he mentioned there in verse 29, that they don't have children. It would be better for them to not have children. Now in Jewish culture, if you didn't have children, people thought you were cursed. And it was even, not biblically, but in their culture, it was even grounds for divorce. If, you, if a woman could not bear her husband a son. And it was sought like, as, a, as a big no-no. But Jesus said it'll be more blessed for those who are coming that they not have children. And why is he saying that? Because Jesus knows 
that less than 40 years from this time, that Rome, the Roman nation, the Roman army is going to come in and wipe out and massacre the Jewish people. And it'll be better for those ones who don't have the babies to worry about in that moment, in that time. You see, Rome is going to kill over 1 million Jews. And according to the historian Josephus, 96,000 of them would be enslaved and taken to Rome. And Roman guards would end up raping and ravaging the women and killing children. When we were got to go to Israel just a few days ago, we got to go up to this place called Masada. Masada is historically a site, not, not in the Bible, but historically it took place around 74 AD. That's when Rome was really conquering after Jesus was out of the picture as far as his life ministry. Rome needed to put a, an end to all the Jewish rebellion. And the last place where the last little bit of rebels went to go hide and make a fort or stay in the fortress was on this plateau, this giant little mountain, giant little mountain, this little plateau called Masada. And Herod put on top of Masada, this plateau, this amazing palace, really, amazing fortress. And Rome basically surrounded this fortress. The Jews who were up there thought that they would never be able to get through until Rome came knocking and they burned down. They, they set up this huge uh, tower to get to their tower and they, they, they burned down their, the Jewish tower. And they went down at night and they began to celebrate and, and shout the most scary things to the Jews up there in the fortress and say, we're coming up tomorrow. And they were celebrating down at that night. And that night, the Jewish people who were up there said, look, it is better for us with their wives and children, their families who were up there in this fortress, this rebel group, it is better for us rather than to become slaves to choose death. And many of them, almost all of them, except for a, a couple of women and a couple of children, they committed suicide. And the husbands, they were in charge of killing their family. And the husband's friends were in charge of killing them, each other. And they basically drew swords or picked straws of who would go last. And by the time that the Romans got up there the next morning, all they found was a bunch of Jewish people who were dead. And... Jesus, seeing all this coming, was saying, look, it is going to be better for those who don't have children. Because Rome was going to wipe them out. Now what's interesting is he said, look, it's, they're going to say to the mountains fall on us and to the hills cover us. And there's usually a dual fulfillment in a lot of prophecies, or in a few prophecies, I, I should say, where there is the immediate fulfillment and there's also a second fulfillment to it. Because when you study the Great Tribulation in the book of Revelation, there's going to come a time when the Antichrist is going to turn against the Jews, begin to attack them in the middle, the three and a half year period of the Great Tribulation, and he's going to begin to attack the Jews so that they're going to have to flee to a rock-fortified city. A lot of people think it's the, the city of Petra. And while they're there in the city of Petra, God is going to shield them and protect them from the persecution. And I recognize that God will still have his remnant as God has his remnant today. We are part of the remnant, his believers. 
But not only that, but the Jewish people too. He's not done with them. When we, when we see Israel as a nation, sometimes there are people who have begun to believe that the church today, the Gentile church, has become the new spiritual Jerusalem. That God is done basically with his Israeli people, his chosen people, and that he's only going to focus on the Gentiles and that we now have inherited all the blessings and God is done with the Jewish people. But that when they get their eschatology, their end times study mixed up and confused. Because when you read the book of Revelation, you see God is not done with his, his chosen ones. That we've been grafted into that family. And I recognize that our God is a merciful God. How many times do we mess up? How many times have we failed and yet here you are today hearing that God loves you, that God's not done with you, that his gifts, his calling in your life are without repentance. They're irrevocable. It's beautiful. In verse 31, Jesus continued to say to these women, he said, for if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry And what he's saying right there is basically, look, if this type of suffering is coming upon the innocent Jesus, then what suffering will those, excuse me, I'm sorry, getting a little choked up, just coughing on my throat really. He said, if this suffering basically is coming upon those, upon an innocent Jesus, Jesus is experiencing this great suffering. If they did these things in the greenwood, what's going to be done to those people who are under the power of darkness? And what are they going to do to those who are his children? How, is it, how much harder is it going to get? Remember when Jesus warned his disciples in John chapter 15, verse 20, He said, look, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And in this life, we know very little of persecution, really, here in the United States. Try going to China. Try to go into underground churches there in the Middle East and see the kind of persecution that they have to endure. In Matthew chapter 5, on the, the Mount of Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. He says, Rejoice and be exceedingly gr- glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, we're blessed, but one thing I, I recognize is that In the United States, a lot of people's faith has actually become weakened because of the blessings that we have here of being able to meet together on a night like this without fear of our government storming in the building. And we take it, and the reason why we stumble on this is because we take it for granted. Getting together, as we're called to, the gathering of the brethren. Is what the Bible talks about. It says, do not forsake the gathering of the brethren. And I understand that during COVID, there was a time we had to shut down, close the doors. Why? Because God does care for the life of people. Life is sacred. 
So we have to take that into consideration. But also with that, when the doors were opened up, a lot of people, they decided, you know what? Uh, we're we're going to stay um, as the online church. And man, I just want to encourage everyone here. You know, sometimes when we get by ourselves, um, the enemy, when we're alone, can attack us so much better when we're alone. But when we have a body of believers who is strengthening us, coming alongside us and encouraging us and showing us the way, man, there's power in his church. You see, church isn't the building, you're right. The building is not the church. The church is you guys. And that's why when I, you know, I, I don't persecute, I'm sorry, I, I don't chastise or rebuke uh, the people who can't make it to church. I encourage them, you know, join your church. And, by, and when, when I say that, I say, look, call out to your brothers and sisters in the Lord and, and make sure that you have fellowship with them because by gathering with them, man, that's the church right there. And, you know, when you're alone, sometimes you realize that you're going to experience the, the family who mocks us. Um, and that persecution, look, our reward's in heaven. So every time you feel like, man, they're making fun of me because I'm a believer today, just in, your ba- in the back of your mind, remember this sound, cha-ching. Why? That's eternal rewards in heaven. Verse 32. There were also two other criminals led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Now, what I see here, two guilty criminals with Jesus. Jesus was numbered with the transgressors as, as the Bible prophesied of. Now, the word Calvary there, when they took him to the place called Calvary, the Greek word for it is cranian, and it literally means a skull. That's the Greek name for a skull. You've often even heard this place called Golgotha. Golgotha, it means the same thing. It's just the Aramaic word, meaning a skull, the place of the skull. And you could still go to Israel today and see this skull-shaped rock. It's still there. Now, the crucifixion. The Persians were the ones who actually invented the crucifixion. It wasn't the Romans. But the Romans then began to modify it to this extreme form of torture. They wanted to torture and humiliate people as much as they possibly could. And it was some sick and twisted individuals who'd created this thing. We're going to talk about this for a moment. About the crucifixion. Remember it. You see, first the nails would be placed, usually through the wrist. And by placing it through the wrist, it would cause these extreme amounts of pain that we get the word excruciating from. That word excruciating in the Latin word for it, it literally comes from the word cross, the crucifix, crucifixion. And then these nails that would be put into a victim you see, if they were just the, the nails in the hands, if that was it, the person would die quickly. And the reason why the person would die quickly is because he can't breathe. So in order, the reason why he can't breathe is he can't pull himself up because he's hanging, 
He's being asphyxiated. So in order to prolong this torture, they put a little platform at the bottom of the cross and they nail his feet to it. So that he can breathe. In order to breathe, all he has to do is push, push up from the bottom of the cross on that little platform, taking a breath, and then he can hang back down again. And many people would actually die from asphyxiation through this period. But it wasn't fast. Many people would actually hang on the cross for several days and die of starvation and and the the bugs that would land on them. They would be not able to, to wipe them away and the birds that would come and pick at them. All these things taking place. So eventually, sometimes what they would do is they would go to their victims and they would actually take a sledgehammer and break the victim's legs in order to speed up the process so that person would die faster because they would die of asphyxiation. Remember the crown of thorns also on Jesus' head. And Jesus endured all of this for you and I. We know this verse, for God so loved the world, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus endured this for us. In verse 34, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. So this is, this is amazing to me right here. Jesus is at, at the point of, of complete, if, if I'd, first of all, I don't know how he was enduring this physical torture for you and I, right? Because I feel like I'm, I'm terrible, right? Why? And he's doing this for us here. And secondly, not only is he enduring the physical pain, but now the spiritual side of it, where he is putting his focus and prayers to the Father on the very people who are condemning him. And it's like, I can't just blame the people who are literally killing him. I have to look at myself and say, you know what? The reason why Jesus was on that cross was for me also. And he hasn't begun to curse even at his father, saying, Father, why did you allow me to go through this suffering? He's still asking his father to have mercy on his persecutors. And those people, what he's saying to them is saying, look, they do not know what they do because why? They're blind spiritually. They don't understand spiritually. Is this our prayer when someone begins to mock us? No, I I think it's not. If I'm being honest with myself, someone's mocking me, I don't say, Father, forgive them but it's something I could try to do next time, right? Something I could grow in. I see Jesus interceding on behalf of us on the cross when he's suffering. How about us to intercede on behalf of people when we're suffering? In verse 34, at the end of verse 34, I should say, it says, and they divided his garments and cast lots. So today, near the Via Dolorosa, which is the way of suffering, the the way that traditionally they believe Jesus walked down this pathway, whether he did or not. Um, My wife and I, we got to visit this place called Gabbatha. 
which traditionally, when I, when I use the word traditionally, it's like usually Catholics believe that this is, a, and certain scholars believe this is where something took place. Um, we got to visit Gabbatha, where Pilate would make his judgment against Jesus there in the Antonio Fortress. And archaeologists since this time have actually dated the site um, to be the time after Jesus was around. So I, I don't put so much importance on that being the literal place. But when we're there, one of the things that I loved about our tour guide is he would continuously tell us, look, whether it happened here or on a couple doors down and to the left, that's not important. What's important is making the connection to the account that literally happened. And when we were in that room, there was this carving on the floor known as the King's Game, which was a game that the Roman guards would play, honestly, for entertainment. And a scary thing is a bored soldier. Because a bored soldier is dangerous. So they began to invent these little ways to entertain themselves with people to torture them. And they had this game, they would throw the dice. And what the archaeologists found on this specific game, which they found not only in this place, but in other places as well, it was, it was like this, this circle with kind of like a pie chart. And they would throw the, the dice. And in each different section was a punishment. It would say, okay, you're going to dress up the guy as a king. And they, that's why they called it a king's game. And then you're going to either scourge him or you're going to beat him or you're going to put a, a crown of thorns on him or, and all these weird twisted things which all really point to what Jesus suffered. And I'm wondering if they were doing this as they're casting lots now for his garments. Now, remember too, in, in other gospels it said that they dressed Jesus up and they began to mock him. They would begin to worship him as king of the Jews, mockingly. And in this moment, I'm wondering, like, man, Jesus, you could have stopped this at any moment. He could have said enough, right? Right? Because he, being the word of God, created everything at the beginning of time. And the word of God becoming flesh could have still used his divine power to just say, it is enough, and just blasted all these guys, vaporized them into smithereens, and he would have been right to do so could have wiped out the whole world really if he wanted to just created a new one you know we're gonna start over let's create a new one let's see if they do better and he didn't why because he was obedient to his father despite his suffering despite him being mocked and i wonder can we be obedient in our life despite the suffering that god allows us to go through can we be obedient to the point of death in verse 35, it says, And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in the letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, saying, This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. And one of the things I hear commonly repeated by all these people who are mocking Jesus is, Save yourself. 
Save yourself. Why don't you save yourself? It's the same temptation that Satan gave to Jesus when he was tempting him in the wilderness. He said, look, you're starving. Turn these stones into bread. He took him to the temple mount and said, look, jump off the temple mount and God's angels will catch you. Let's see if he really loves you. Test God. And then he took him to a mountain and showed him the entire world, all the nations of the world, and said, look, I will give all these kingdoms into your hand, Jesus, if you bow down and worship me. The very people that you've come to this world to save, I'll give them to you if you just bow down and worship me. And every time Jesus pointed to the Bible, man shall not live by bread alone. You shall not test the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods. You shall not bow to any other gods but the Lord, Father. See, that temptation is there like, look, you don't have to suffer. You don't have to die on the cross, Jesus, if you just bow down and worship me. But it would be at the cost of disobeying the Father. Now, Satan wants us to believe that same lie. You guys have this temptation in your life to save yourself. You do. Maybe it's not literal life and death, but the temptation comes to be obedient or not. Satan will come alongside you and say, hey, look, like, why don't you just save your, yourself in this little predicament? And you're, just feed your flesh. Are you, you're sad and lonely, right? The husband, the wife, the friend, they've been mean to you today. Just, just allow yourself to cheer up by just have this drink to relax you. Just watch this porn to fulfill your lust. Just smoke a little bit of this weed to get it, you numb so you don't have to worry about that. Just save yourself. You're in this little trial. You can save yourself. And that's what Satan does to us. That idea that we could save ourselves from pain, from suffering, from loneliness, from depression, from hunger, from lust, is that idea to save yourself. But Jesus taught us something opposite of that, of save yourself. He said, deny yourself. He said, pick up your cross daily, the instrument of death, and follow him. Remember that famous quote, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. And it isn't until that we die to ourselves that Jesus can really save us. See, we can't save ourselves. It's Jesus alone who saves. And we also can't save others. It's Jesus alone. In verse 40, But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do not, do you not even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the two, what I see here, look, the, the two guilty men with Jesus on the crosses, one of them has his eyes open to the truth. And he admits that he's guilty first. He says, look, we've done wrong. And then he confesses that Jesus is righteous. So this man has done nothing wrong. And then he confesses Jesus as Lord. I see right there salvation. Admits to his guilt, confesses Jesus to be righteous, and confesses Jesus to be Lord. See, if we haven't had this moment in our life, I want to proclaim to us today that this is how a person's soul is saved from hell right here. 
confessing your sins to Jesus, making him your Lord and your Savior. Now, we often want to cry out to Jesus as our Savior, God, save me. But then when he says, I want to be your Lord, the decision maker, that's when we kind of take a step back. I want you to be my Savior, Jesus, but, but Lord, I don't know if I can let you be my Lord because you might call me to do things in my life that's going to cause me to die to myself, and I don't know if I could do that. But it's what we're called to. In verse 43, and Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Here, Jesus is proclaiming to this man that he will enter paradise with him that very day. He didn't tell him, okay, well, first, why don't you get off the cross, go get baptized, and then we can have a conversation. No, he didn't say that. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. And I recognize that salvation does not come by works. It's by this man who's on the cross simply believing that Jesus was Lord, able to forgive him. No baptism right here is mentioned. Just simple belief. Do deathbed conversions happen? Yes. They're miraculous though, and I don't say that they're often. But works don't get us in a better standing with God. One of the things I love about my Lord, my Savior Jesus, is that there's nothing that I can do to make him love me any less. And there's also nothing that I can do to make him love me anymore. His love is infinite. In verse 44, now it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness all over the earth until the ninth hour. So this is when it says the sixth hour just for us to understand what the take place of the picture. That's noon, that's 12 p.m. noon. They call that the sixth hour. So the ninth hour would be 3 p.m. And there's a miraculous eclipse now that's taking place there. During the Passover, there's really no way for this to be happening without a, a miracle. The sun was darkened in verse 45 and the veil of the temple was torn in two. Now, all of creation here is being affected by the king on the cross. All of creation. Darkness over the land. And the veil that separated the priests from entering the Holy of Holies is torn from top to bottom. Not from bottom to top, but from top to bottom. And it's very symbolic as, look, Jesus is saying, God is saying, what separated man and God is done for. That Jesus has become the bridge now for us to approach God, our Father. God himself tore this veil. No more separation. And the temple also, it's not necessary for salvation anymore. Back then, before in the Old Testament times, the temple was very necessary for atonement. Now we as believers, you don't have to go to Israel to be saved. You can experience God in your bedroom. You can experience God tonight. In fact, some of you are. Verse 46, And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. See, Jesus, he didn't die unwillingly but he willingly gave up his spirit to the father because jesus had power still it was both god and jesus who had power over his spirit and jesus had complete faith in the father saying father i commit myself into your spirit saying look in the darkest hour we can also commit ourselves into the hands of god 
So maybe we're tonight we're thinking, God, I'm in the midst of suffering today, God. I'm in the midst of trial, but I will put my fate in your hands. In verse 47, so when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed from him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these three, watching these things. So here are three different groups, a Roman, a Gentile centurion who believes in Jesus now. He sees, look, this man was righteous. We have the religious persecutors beating their breasts in mockery and then those who follow Jesus but at a, at a distance. Look, where is our hope in the darkest hours of the night? Where is our hope when all the trials are surmounting against it? You see, tonight we're studying the day of Jesus' death, but this isn't the end of the story. We know what happens on that Sunday, that Jesus will be resurrected. And we're finishing, we're wrapping this up. The last few verses, I, I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna wait and hold off until... Uh, this Sunday morning when we study on the resurrection. But I want to kind of lay this out simply for us as we close. We see simply put, look, humanity as a whole had the curse of sin, Adam and Eve, since all the way back then from the beginning of, of creation to now, we've had the curse of sin in our lives. Our punishment for this was death and hell. And only God could atone for our sins. But before Christ, it was only that atonement was only a covering for the sins of the world. They were not able to enter into heaven yet. It wasn't until Jesus died for our sins that people had the sins removed to be able to enter into heaven, into eternity with the Lord. And in order for us to receive his salvation, simply put, we just have to believe on him. We get to proclaim him as Lord and Savior. And that also requires when you say that he's your Lord, repentance in your life. Because it's through Jesus' sacrifice that we are given eternal life and blessing by the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us, to give us peace. Not only now, but in the kingdom to come forever. So I, I know that through this account, the story of Jesus on the cross. There are things that are, are happening in our lives that we need to either put on the altar or ask that Jesus would help us to help us to, to have the, the faith to let go, to have the faith to say, you know what, Lord, Th this is what I'm dealing with right here. Whether it's a sin, whether, whether it's an attack from the enemy in our life, God wants us to just take that, put it on the altar and say, Lord, I'm in your hands. I commit myself to you. 